Gig Gab, episode 88 for Monday, October 31st. Happy Halloween 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to Gig Gab, the podcast by, for, and about working musicians. Here, exhausted in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Los Gatos, California, it's Paul Kent. How's it going, Dave? It goes. Uh, lots of performances this weekend with uh, with Bitter Pill. We actually did an extra one for an empty house of or a house full of cameras last night. So uh, doing only cameras, only ca- well cameras and camera operators. Yes, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's easier to film when there's no people in the seats. So, uh, so you just put the laugh track in later. Yeah, actually, they filmed both shows yesterday. They filmed one with the uh, crowd, and which was yet another sold out crowd. It's been every show has been sold out, which is just stellar. And we have our final performance cool. this evening. Yeah, it's been it's been truly a, a blessed experience. So, yeah, fun are you going to get a Tony? <laughs> we're we're hoping to get a Portsmouth Spotlight Award for that, but you know, otherwise. <laughs> Can we can we email in votes for that if we want? Uh, we might we might arrange for that. That's right. Yeah. Cool. yeah. All right. So Dave, we have a guest today. We do. We do. And our guest today is a musician that I've had the privilege of playing with in the past. Uh, he's a musician, fantastic drummer, but he's also turned thespian. Who's published a book called self-published a book called The Unstarving Musician's Guide to Getting Paid Gigs: How to Get Booked and Paid. What you're worth over and over again. Everybody, please welcome Roberto Hernandez. Well, hello. Hi, Roberto. <laughs> Guys, thanks for having me on. It's really exciting. Really exciting. Thanks for joining Appreciate us, man. Have. Yeah, no, it's it's great to have you. you. You've put together a very cool book. Uh, it's a short book, which is good for, you know, us ADD musician types. Uh, <laughs> so, but, that, but, it, but really valuable, just boiled down to the essence. I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to kind of set this up, what you promise in this book, what, you, what you've gone for is, one, gig as often as you want. Two, get paid what you're worth. Three, play with musicians you admire and respect. How to market yourself and your band for success and how to create demand for your talents. That, that's a pretty broad – it's amazing that you were able to do that in a short and concise book. Tell me a little bit about, about why you wrote the book. What was your thinking when you sat down to go out, out and do this? Well, um, I say as much in the intro of the book, I believe, first chapter that I think it was 2013 probably that uh, December was rolling around. And um, – I looked at my gig calendar and I had gigs for um, every month the following year. And in some of those months, um, multiple gigs. And that was before December 31st. Um, And it was almost at that exact moment I was thinking to myself, wow, I bet some some of my musician friends would like to know uh, how I did that, because I, I know that. Not everyone um, gets to, you know, does all the gigs that they want to do. I have some really close friends, as a matter of fact, that um, one in particular I'm thinking of who used to spend a lot of time telling me, you know, that I got the good gigs and, you know, was really frustrated since then. He's kind of turned it around for himself. But I just thought, you know, I want to share the story. I think a lot of people would would um, be interested and could use the information. And I should probably share that Roberto it's kind of an interesting cat. So he used to live in the, actually he's originally from Texas, but he was a resident of the Bay area in, in our music scene here for a while. And even before this book, he had started a very interesting kind of meetup series 
to help give musicians some marketing ideas, which was very unique and very helpful. I, he was nice enough to ask me to come talk about how I do what I do for the house rockers once, but kind of this vibe and the demand, you know, that there's this thirst for understanding because a lot of musicians are, you know, they're good at music, but this stuff is definitely outside the sphere. And so um, he started with this kind of like social interaction that was really, really useful. And did those meetups inform the book at all? Um, no, I, I think the ideas for both of them were happening uh, about the same time. And then you know, I should probably give a shout out to our mutual friend, Ariel Asher, because I was telling her about it, you know, this idea for the meetup. And she just goes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no. And then we were just, you know, we wanted to try and get together with some of the local musicians, as you said, and help them out. And we were also, I was really excited personally to have people like you and some of the other uh, folks that came and spoke to small groups of people just to hear what you guys do. I thought it would be a really fun way to learn some stuff and share some information. All right. Well, cool. Talk a little bit about the methodology that you went into. Like, is the book, you know, a brain dump from your experiences? Um, I think you, you, you interviewed some people. You sent out some questionnaires to some people. Talk a little bit about how the information that went into the book all came together for you. Oh, man, it was it was hard, actually. Uh, I had to get a lot of <laughs> a lot of advice on just the, the literal process of writing. Uh, the book and and getting through it. And honestly, when I went through the first draft, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is garbage. Um, but I just kept at it. The way it literally came out, Paul, was um, I got a hold. And, you, you know, I mean, you can do this with post-it notes on a wall or you can get a piece of freeware that I did called um, Mind Map. And I literally used that to sort of map out uh, different topics uh, that I wanted to write about. And that turned into an outline for the book. I knew that because of a, a related project to go outside of the book and just help musicians in general, um, I knew that I was going to be talking to some people. So I was having conversations both about this book and about a bigger idea, which is to do an online community to help musicians of all types and genres be better marketers and basically make, do more of what they love, which is to make music. So that, that was it. And it took a lot of months and a lot <laughs> to get it all done. About how many musicians do you think you spoke to over the over the research for the book? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me, but I kept um, a market research um, spreadsheet that I still have. And I bet I uh, either emailed or had phone conversations with uh, 75 to 80 different musicians. How how much of the book came from your own personal experience versus, you know, what you learned in these, in these 80 interviews that you did? Well, despite all those interviews, not, uh, most of it is personal experience. And then there's the occasional, like, I think one guy actually got quoted in the book and I, I wanted to quote him for some reason. And then, um, the others might recognize a mention of, if they remember our conversation, they might recognize that I reference a conversation without even mentioning by name. So really those interviews, the content of those interviews are just kind of sprinkled in what they, for the book, they turned out to be, um, kind of validation for things that, that I knew or was doing, but it's also a little eye opening as well. Like I said, um, you know, there were these occasional conversations where I'd find that people were extremely frustrated about you know, trying to keep themselves booked. And so that was, that was interesting. So we'll dive into some of the tips, you know, and some excerpts from the book in a bit, but why don't we start actually from kind of like the view from 10,000 feet, 
from your perspective, what is the gating factor? What is the limiting factor that keeps musicians from getting more gigs? Uh, yeah, I think most of us would agree with this. Those of us that, that do or have played a lot, it, it's mostly about relationships, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, honestly, people not realizing um, either how good they, they, they really are at developing relationships. Like they, they haven't recognized the value of the relationships that they have developed um, or they're just not, um, I use the word leverage. That sounds kind of, doesn't really come out the right way, but um, you know, we, we are honestly able to leverage our relationships in all facets of life and, and, and particularly with gigging. And when I say leverage, I just, you know, really at the core of it, um, I think I said this much in the book, but people, our friends, uh, and people in general who like us want to help us. And so, man, if you're out asking them for anything from, Hey, who's the, could you tell me who I might talk to, to get a gig at this place? Or maybe a conversation with an actual venue booking contact. Um, Hey, I have this band I think would go over really well here. Can I send you, uh, some, send you our website and some other, whatever other stuff you need. And, um, you know, people want to help us. So I think that the biggest thing, the biggest, one biggest thing is relationships and understanding how to best use them. Did you talk to many venues in the, in the research for the book? Booking uh, let me think about that for a second. Um, not as much as I did the players, but for the book, because, um, you know, the, the book really was for, for musicians and players, but I did talk to some and, and the ones I, I have talked to and plan to talk to will be for that bigger project. Because another thing I didn't, I don't talk about in the book, I don't think is that, um, there's a lot of frustration on the venue side too. And, and one of them is just the sheer logistics of getting people like us, uh, you know, managing cat herding, you know, people like us to get us in there and just whatever else they're dealing with. So um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, part of developing a relationship or part, you know, under the umbrella of relationship development is understanding what the person that you're looking for something from is, is going through. Right. And knowing that these venue owners or managers or whatever it is uh, are, are having to deal with and herding cats, like you said, and all that stuff, being sensitive to that and, and helping, you know, helping solve that problem for them can, can pay huge dividends both in the short and long term. Oh my God. That's, that's, uh, so true. Um, you're reminding me that probably one of the easiest things I ever did to help venues was to refer them to other people that I thought would go over really well. They're friends of mine or people that I saw. Um, and they really appreciate that kind of thing. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because as a musician, you work so hard to get a contact at a venue, right? And uh, and and then finally you're there and you get the gig, and it would seem on the surface totally counterproductive to then immediately give to the venue. Oh yeah, here's contact information for people that haven't gone through all the trouble that I have to 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 get to know you. <laughs> right? No, seriously, like the competitive the competitive side of of uh, certainly of, of, of me would say, no, don't like, don't share that. But absolutely. The venue loves it when you do that because the, it solves their headache. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the other, you just reminded me too, that, uh, one of the other underlying themes, uh, for the book and sort of keeping yourself 
uh, quote unquote booked or, or in paying gigs is that it's a long game, right? Um, uh, when I th- I do think of some of the younger artists, particularly those who are in original music, and they might read some of this and go, well, I'm not going to spend years doing this. I got to get gigs now. And some of those guys and women are going to be completely capable of doing it a lot faster, but really it's still a long game for everyone, isn't it? Because, uh, the relationship thing just stays with you forever yeah. <laughs> when you're trying to gig and, and, and play with people that you like both sides of that, right? The, the positive sides of the relationship and the negative sides, if you wind up burning a bridge or if a bridge gets burned, uh, be it your fault or not, it will negatively affect you, uh, you know, in terms of not being able to work with that person again. Now, maybe the bridge is burned for good reason and you don't want to work with that person, but you never know where that person's going to be in five years. And that might be, a, you know, that then you might want to work with them. Nope. You didn't repair things back then. Now you've got some work to do now. So, yes, yes, yes. So true. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I'm curious. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the advice you give in the book. I don't want to give it all away, but um, I, I think one of the things that, that really kind of struck out to me uh, or stuck out to me, it didn't strike out. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> I said I was tired. Um, advice on getting paid what you're worth, the whole negotiating thing. Uh, it, it, can you share some of the, some of what you've learned uh, about, about that in particular? Sure. And you know what? I'm lucky in that I have some sales experience and it almost felt, uh, felt like I had to be careful about mentioning or using the word sales in the book because of a lot of the people or much of the demographic, I think that would potentially read it. You know, sales is kind of a yucky word, but, um, I have had some sales experience and, and, you know, a popular thing that we hear now, which is, I think is a good thing is that, um, selling is really solving problems. It's not like it's not trying to get them to buy your widget or pay you money, right? It's about solving problems or helping people. Right. And uh, oh man, what was the question, Dave? <laughs> how, how, do, how does a musician make sure he or she is getting paid what they're worth? Well, you know, for me, um, there's a couple things. I, I you have to be a little realistic with what your market is bearing, right? There's sure. that market dynamic that Paul and I have talked about. And there's also the question of what is it worth it for me or for you personally to go out and do a gig? Um, you know, knowing what the market will bear and depending on what, you know, uh, what, what type of music are you playing in cover bands or are you an original artist? Cause those things, um, matter as well. And then, um, it, it it doesn't hurt to get a little, re- uh, maybe competitive research is the right word, but to find out what some of your peers are getting paid. Um, and then you've got to do a reality check, though, because not all peers are created equal, right? Some of them deservedly get paid more, and we have to do the ego check and um, you know make sure that we're okay if we're maybe not getting paid as much as someone. Um, what goes into that equation, though? Why, why would they deserve more? Well, at the end of the day, because they're pulling more people and helping the place sell more food and beverage or whatever it is that they're selling. Yeah. <laughs> so draw. Right. draw. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the quality of draw, right? I, I've, I've actually come across some bands that have pretty impressive draws, but their people don't buy stuff, which is not good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's that totally true. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's just, it, it really is honestly uh, also a matter of, not leading the conversation with something that says I'm open to negotiating, but leading the conversation more to the effect of this is what we ask. 
um, in terms of getting paid and then just keeping your mouth shut and seeing what happens. And then if you need to negotiate, of course you do. The silent close. I want to press on this a little bit because the promise of the book is get paid what you're worth. What I'm kind of hearing there is get paid what you can realistically get. Is, is there, are those two different concepts to you? Well, yeah, you know, I had to come right out in the book and say, look, I'm a, here's what I do. Here's the kind of musician that I am. I'm not a full-time musician. Um, I consider myself uh, a professional. Um, I, I think we've all used the word semi-pro because we work some other day job that's maybe music or not music related, but it's not, you know, gigging or recording or whatever it is we do. Um, so I tried to be very realistic in the intro of the book about, you know, I do this part-time I make, um, you know, some grocery money and money to uh, keep myself in decent gear and to just honestly make me feel like my time was was well spent. I got paid to hang out with my friends, too, and play some music. So by all means, you know, for anyone who's listening, um, hey, being in a cover band is not a quick way to to uh, to be wealthy. Um, that said, I have some really good friends in Texas who play full time and a lot of what they do is cover band stuff and they are just full-time musicians and they seem to do quite well. <laughs> yeah. Different so. markets will support it to different degrees. I, I agree with that. And, you know, different places, you know, I, I think, you know, what I see a lot is musicians who have been around saying that the pay scale has gone down. If anything, not really gone up in about 30 years, like cover musicians used to get a hundred bucks a gig in the seventies. And yep. now you're lucky if you can get that, which is kind of a strange, well, it, a strange it, concept. I, I, I relate that to the drinking age, right? The drinking age used to be a lot young, a lot younger, a lot lower. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I had never thought about that. Uh, that's I mean, yeah, because I've, I've had the same thought as you, Paul. Like, what, what could what could possibly cause this? It's like, well, there's less people, especially, you know, yeah, it's only three years. Right. But that's an important three years because people in their 20s starting to have families and, and it becomes a very dwindling, but you know, uh, you would think that there's a balance point with the with the uh, with the rate of inflation relative to the loss of audience. Right. Not to get too. Yes. No, I, I agree with it, you, but. though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's right. It should still have gone up, but it didn't. And if you look at, as I'm sure we all have, you know, you know, some club owners well enough that they share some of their books with you and you look at it and it's like, yeah, they're not. It's not like they're taking this extra money. They should be paying the bands and putting it in their pockets. Some are, I'm sure. But in a general sense, when you kind of look at the books for the night, it's like, actually, yeah, you know, that's fair. Okay, cool. You know. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to your next um, premise of the book. Play Actually, with musicians. I, I, if, can I can I hang us here for one second? Because you mentioned something that I want to like explore a little bit more, and and that's related to negotiating. You said offer your price and stop talking, and it, it's a. It, I always like to call that the silent close. Right? He who speaks next loses. I don't yeah. want to say anybody's going to lose, but there is value in being confident with what you said and stopping what you're saying. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I, I've definitely done it both ways. <laughs> uh, and, and as I got, as I got a little more experienced, learned to, um, a, again, you know, ask, ask for what the band is looking for in this case and, and B, you know, just shut up for a minute and let, let the other person talk. But also, um, be okay with the price that I'm asking for, no matter what it is that I'm giving you a price for, but be okay with it and let that come across in your voice. 
And amazingly, you'll find that people don't really balk about price unless you make it a thing. And you can you can make it a thing subconsciously just by uh, convincing yourself that maybe you're not quite worth that or maybe your widget's not quite worth that. Yep. Well, I, I'd go so a little bit farther and just say as long as you're in the ballpark, uh, in a, a starting position should even it should never be a, a, an end of discussion, right? It never should right. be, you know, you throw it out there and it is – I think the inexperienced bookers, you talk to make yourself feel more comfortable. The silence is, is uncomfortable with you if you're not used to this. And I think Dave's advice is really good is that, you know, you throw it out there and at least be polite and get the and get the reaction. Sometimes the guy on the other side of the phone will be as inexperienced a negotiator as you and say, well, if that's the price. That's the price. Or the guy will know what his market is worth if he knows his business and he'll He'll throw something out and say, well, I, I can do this. But rarely will your, your opening salvo, your opening offer, um, be a, a point of no return for negotiation. That is true. That is true. I totally agree. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, rarely are you going to – is it going to like light the bridge on fire just because right. you you asked for more than they were thinking of giving you? That's right. Yeah. All right, so um, Roberto, play with musicians you admire and respect. What's the point of the of the emphasis that you're sharing here? You know that I think that came later. That thought came to me late in the writing of the book. Um, I'd spent so much time writing about and talking about relationships. The relationship thing has a chapter, but it it weaves through the entire book, and it just sort of dawned on me that when I looked at the whole of my music playing experience. Um, and, and just, you know, life in general, you know, there are people that I've hung out with and done stuff with that I really enjoy spending the time with. And I've also made the mistake of doing things and playing music with people I didn't really enjoy spending so much time with. And um, I thought it was important to say that, uh, you know, play with musicians that that you um, admire and respect. Um, I talk about things in there like, you know, try, you've, we've all heard the expression, hopefully, uh, you know, try not to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, it's always my desire to not be the best musician on the stage or in the, in the rehearsal room, because I get to learn so much from others, um, when I'm not. And, um, and certainly it's just, you guys know, it's just not worth our time to play at places or with people that are not fun to be with. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah, no, that, that I I like that 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 twist on the don't be the smartest guy in the room uh mentality. Uh because that's the best way to learn is to play with people that are better than you. Yeah. yeah and conversely, I have played with some guys and uh Paul and I well, we all know one of them and I uh, maybe I'll mention his name too, but um uh, we play I played with a guy who is probably almost always the best if not one of the best players in the room and he's just phenomenal at lifting other people up. And I so would like to be that way too. <laughs> I'm yeah. not as good at that as he is, but anyway, that's just a wonderful skill set too. So sometimes we have to be that person. Well, this is about, you know, making good karma in your community and having that come back to you. So what I would take from this is be picky about the people you play with because it's good for you and your career and, uh, and be that person who contributes to the value of your musical community. And that will, that that creates referrals that, you know, if someone can't do a gig and they're looking for something to do it, they'll often give it to even if you're not the best player in the room. If you're good enough, um, you will be you will be referred because people like you. 
And yeah. that's that's part of growing your market. What, what oh, do you man, think? So true. What do you think about being a sub? How, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, oh, you, if you if you looked at the table of contents, you know I think something about it. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm, I'm, that might have been a loaded question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I actually couldn't wait to talk about this because I, I listened to an episode where, and I'm sure it's happened more than once, where Paul went off on the whole subbing thing because uh, Paul, you run a you run a band that uh, you run kind of a different type of deal in that um, you guys play a lot of really great shows and you've got this what I consider to be a gigantic band. Um, and so there's a lot of commitment that goes into being uh, with the house rockers. So I totally understand your frustration when you, on, in some cases when frustration creeps in over someone subbing. But for me, um, man, subbing has been ginormous. Um, I wouldn't have spent like, you know, the book really talks most when I, I don't necessarily talk uh, super specific about the bands I was playing with since around probably 2007, 2008, but much of what I was writing was really thinking about those experiences. And a lot of the time I was gigging because I was subbing. Now there was a time where um, uh, it was like people were asking me to play constantly and I was, you know, not available because I was playing with someone else. And I even had, um, one guy, uh, who stopped asking me because I was always gigging and a little bit of that was because I was playing in, you know, two or three bands and I was picking up an occasional sub gig. But for me, it was, it was huge. It helped me, um, get my name out there. It helped me make a lot of new friends. It helped me make some new venue contacts, new fan base. It was just huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I've found the same thing. Subbing can open lots of doors, but it can also, become kind of a, a, a trial scenario, you know, like you said, it, there's always the long game and I've found, you know, doing a, a sub gig here or there, you meet some musicians, some of them you like, some of them you don't like. And it's like, okay, this was, you know, we're not married here. We're just out on a date. It's no problem. <laughs> right. You know, we play, finish the date, you know, we go Dutch on dinner, whatever it is and you yeah. go home and it's all good. But if it worked out, then it's like, all right, well, let's keep each other's numbers. And, you know, maybe six months from now, I need a bass player for a gig or, you know, or a new project's coming together and look magically uh, it all works. And so know. I hear you guys doing this and, and I'm, I'm, I'll go back to where my position on this was. Yeah. You guys are giving the musicians answer and a musician who wants to play. If you're a musician who can learn quick, has good ears, has big ears mm. and can, you know, that's, that is work for you. And that is, that is technically part of the definition of a musician getting more gigs is being, being ready to be an effective sub and all that that entails for the band leader. There's two paths to this. There's one, I'm always going to put out the best rehearsed, tightest group that my audience is going to get to know and love and look forward to coming to see. Or I'm going to create an organization where I can take any gig. I'm going to have general business GB, GB song list, and uh, I will surround myself with the 20 best uh, at, at every instrument in my area. So any offer comes in, I can assemble a band. There's two different philosophies of it, you know. I, I, I feel emotional about the first, obviously, but I do get the second. If you want to work and not have to turn down gigs because you don't have guys available, 
you build something that is replicable, and that depends on a good ecosystem of subs, which is what you guys sure. are advocating. But yeah. um, again, you know, I, well, I think I'm clear I think, where my head is. I think there's answer number three as well, which has nothing to do with a long-term band, right? I find myself in a lot of short-term projects. Lately, it's been these theater things, but I've also had some bands that are just put together for a short period of time. And that's where you want people that you've met as subs at these other things. Like I need somebody that can come together real fast and get this thing done and, uh, and is decent to get along with. Cause I got to live with them for, you know, whatever, uh, deal with yeah. them for a week. And actually when I did that, the musical I did just before this one, that bloody, bloody, uh, Andrew Jackson, the band leader came to me and he said, first he asked me, do you know any, uh, guitar players? And so I racked my brain that can read and guitar players that can read. That's a real short list, you know, <laughs> but the guy who taught me, they, well, it's just because reading, look, I don't, that's not a, a, a dig at guitar players at all. I've learned to read on guitar and I can't do it quickly or well, but it's like reading for six pianos simultaneously. It's awful. And, and mm. there's no good reason unless you want those gigs to, to learn how to read on guitar. Um, so I had to really rack my brain. And the guy who taught me how to read on guitar, I was like, uh, he might be the one. So he did the gig. And then three weeks later, the band director calls me and says, hey, do you know any bass players? It's like, wait a minute. There's only four of us in the band and you and me are two. You know, it's like, I'm going to put together the band. Who's the band leader here again? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I pulled in this this high school kid, actually. He's a senior in high school bass player that I had worked with. I'd coached him, but he was easy to get along with and I knew he could read. And so, you know, it's these short term gigs where being th having that mentality of the of a sub really is what got those guys the gigs like yep i can do it i'm willing to learn you, you don't have to worry about me great you know and so you know those those recommendations got those guys paid so which is good I, I, totally. I hope they get paid you know yeah you know one one other thing about subbing though there is a, a dark side in, to it in my mind too and i've seen this that um you know bands that really want to to be well known uh but also have this you know we'll play the gig at any cost let's get a sub uh they struggle sometimes to build their own brand identity because you know the personnel's different the sound is different it's not as well rehearsed and that can be yeah that can be not a good thing so well it can I, be not a good thing but it, i i would say that that is a business strategy you know if it, like i have a friend who has a band and the band is named after him it's the it's the joe schmo band right mm -hmm. and what you are going to get guaranteed when you go see the Joe Schmo band is Joe Schmo. Right. And then, and then some cast of characters, which is not unlike if you go see many, you know, headlining vocalists or, or singer songwriters, some of them have settled into similar bands over the years, but a lot of them, you don't really know who the bands are. Yeah, if you go so see Clapton, you don't strategy. know who his band is or right. you could find out, but you're not paying to see his band. You're paying to see Clapton. And, and that's it. So that is, that is a strategy. So long as there is a, a, um, uh, a song, you know, a content strategy that, you know, like general business songs and there is a good pool of subs. So I don't, I, you know, that's not the way I envision how to how to create music. You know, that's 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 not my vibe, but I get that it is a vibe and it does work for th some other people. Yeah, I, I mm -hmm. want to be subs in other people's bands. I don't want subs in my band. 
for exactly the reason you said, Roberto. Seriously. Smart man. That, yeah, totally. Like that's, yeah. You're the problem, Dave. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, sure. I, it's not the first time people have told me that. And... I, You know what? I thought I wanted subs in my bands for a while, and I quickly realized that, no, no I don't. I don't, man. I want, I, want the, I want these guys that know what's going on and that our crowd – recognizes and then play it the way we like to play it. Yeah. I, you know, I actually wonder back when those, when those uh, club gigs were paying really well and people could make a living. So if we go back to the seventies, I know here in the South Bay area in San Francisco Bay area, um, there was a really thriving club scene and guys were making money and paying their rent, some payment the mortgage. Um, I wonder if the sub scene was the same concept back then or if being a, in a band was the goal and was being lucrative. I wonder if this kind of whole freelancing mentality is an offshoot of the necessities of what the market brings. I bet it's grown a lot because of um, our ability to communicate and share our what we're doing so much more easily, which which also brings me to we, we were talking about the. You know, we used, we used to get paid so much more decades ago and we're still getting paid the same. I've always argued that um, we are vying for people's uh, interest in entertainment because uh, if you just look back a couple decades, we didn't have um, we didn't have we hardly had the Internet. Yeah, we didn't right. have iPhones. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have video games as we do today. And we didn't even have DJs at one point, really, that, you know, like we do today. And there's just so much going on. I mean, I've run into bars that used to have a good, vibrant live music scene, and they make more money showing um, MMA fights live in their bar, which is weird, but, not, you know. <laughs> Very true. All right, so let's move to, like, some good teaser tips. What do you want people to know about the book now before we tell them how to get it and how to find you? But give us, like, you know, Roberto's top three, four, five things for musicians to think about, about getting more gigs, getting better pay. What's your kind of uber perspective on this? Wow, okay, and Keep a spreadsheet on all your contacts, all those relationships that are so important. Keep a spreadsheet uh, with all their contact info. Stay in touch with them because people move around and change, you know, gigs like your booking contacts. Stay in touch with them. Go see them once in a while. Um, Don't discount really old school marketing like, you know, in venue posters. Those are still, I think, one of the little things you can do that make a venue so happy. Uh, when you take a poster there about your upcoming gig, because not a lot of bands do that, at least um, like in the Bay Area. I didn't see a lot of bands doing that in the circles that I ran in. And um, when you do engage with venues, especially early on, ask them a question you can ask them that will, I think, impress the heck out of them is um, if they have a... um, a, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the uh, verbiage here. Uh, one of you will be able to help me, but they basically have a package that has their branding guidelines on it because you sure. are to- you're totally open to co-marketing on, and, and be sure to lay out what you do for your marketing. And it can be as simple as uh, we do email blasts and, and um, a Facebook event for all of our gigs. And hardly any of them are going to take you up on it. And if they do, cool. Because you can right. do that co-marketing branding thing with them. But if they don't, they were still like, well, these guys are serious. They're going to actually market the gig. So That's that's interesting. Y- you know, when you mentioned posters, I always – my initial thought about posters is, oh, they're worthless. Nobody's going to use them. And maybe that's true. But by doing – if the venue asks about posters and you do them – it's that relationship with the venue. You're respecting what they're asking for. It's not a huge deal for you to do it and it makes them happy. So maybe you'll get a, a return booking and that's, you know, that's key. 
Yeah, there's a guy in the Bay Area that I'm sure uh, Paul knows as well, and he has done something really clever in that. He developed this fantastic um, poster with a great image of his band on it, and he basically left leaves. Uh, and this is a nice poster, and he leaves a space on there to take a sharpie and fill in the date they're appearing. So he's not even making a unique one for every gig, but so what? They look great, and um, it's part of his branding too. If he plays a venue six times over the course of three months. Uh, that poster looks the same, but it's got a new date scribed in on it. He's he totally branded himself. So he makes yeah, so it easy. We're talking about easy. posters. Um, Dave, if you want to put in the show notes, I use a site called Graphic River, which has a gazillion templates. Um, I'm um, on a scale of one to ten. I'm about a four and a half with Photoshop. Um, they're all Photoshop templates, you know, really extravagantly laid out stuff. But, I mean, beautiful band-specific templates for all different types of uh, uh, environments. So what Roberto described is probably the smartest way, if you can get a template where you can just Sharpie specifics. But if you're any good at all with Photoshop, um, you can get some pretty nice, like really pro-looking posters at Graphic River and, and, uh, and download them. Huh. Very cool. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. No question. Cool. That's a good That's a good tip, by the way. Um for making posters and doing all your other marketing is try to templatize as much of it as you can because it's so much easier to sustain and just uh, uh some of us want to be so super creative with every you know thing that we do which is cool but it can also take up a lot of your time and you want to get stuff music done. <laughs> yeah. you gotta get stuff done yeah. yeah yeah you have to be efficient about it of course yeah cool very cool stuff all right well um Thank you for all of this, Roberto. This is great. And thanks for creating this book. It's a, it's a cool thing. Uh, tell people where to find you, where to get the book, how that all is going to work. Please. Sure, 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 sure. Um, well, they can go to unstarvingmusician.com and that'll land you on uh, my homepage and you can just click a link there straight to Amazon or you can go straight to Amazon and just search for unstarving musicians. Uh, guide to getting paid gigs and it should come up it's available on kindle and and uh, paperback awesome. and then um i'm you know i'm kind of at that early stage with all the marketing and promotions so i'm i'm still working on things but if you um either visit the, the website um or the blog or find me on uh twitter which is at uh, roberto double rh so roberto rrh um i'll be throwing some stuff out there for you know people to take advantage of and hopefully get some value from Sweet. Very, very cool. And and it, we might as well offer this to you, too, just so that you can remain being an unstarving musician. What area of the country do you or where do you live now if somebody needs a drummer? I'm so far away now. I moved. <laughs> I moved to uh, El Valle, Panama in Central America. <laughs> <laughs> OK. <laughs> the beauty of the Internet. I had no idea. I thought I heard some like like uh, tropical birds in the background at one point. But that would have been the only cue that uh, I might have had that, that you were you were somewhere in some tropical paradise. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, interesting side note. You know, I shipped my drums here because I couldn't be without them. And I thought this is going to be a great time for me to just get in touch with practicing again and getting, being a better musician. And that's been a challenge because of, I, you know, I'm having to get a room that's not, you know, that, that, that caters to, to playing drums in. And then um, also I, we moved to a lovely rural area and there's just not a huge scene right here. There are some musicians, but I'm probably going to find myself um, uh, going to some of the neighboring towns soon uh, to meet um, some of these musicians that I've met on Facebook already and, uh, and maybe even moving about again. So we're, um, 
my wife and I had been thinking about a move like this for a while, and uh, we're we're still uh, not sure you know, where we'll end up, but we'll be here at least uh, close to a year. Wow. Very, very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Paul, do you have any more questions for Roberto before we, no, this uh, was good catching up. It's all good. Roberto. Thank you so much. You've offered a valuable resource for people and I'm sure they're going to enjoy checking you out. Thank you guys. I really, really appreciate it. Make sure you check out unstarvingmusician.com folks, or uh, visit Roberto on Twitter, Roberto RRH. Of course you can find us at facebook.com slash gig podcast. We would love to see you there. Join our little group and all that stuff. Uh, We've got some great conversations. Speak up. Always be performing.